Our scripture passage today is taken from Acts 15, 1 through 31. Listen for the word of the Lord. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. When they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When its members read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May God grant me to speak with judgment and to have thoughts of what I have received. For God is the guide even of wisdom and the corrector of the wise. For both we and our words are in God's hands. Amen. 
So I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household in which I recall virtually no profanity or cursing. Occasionally, a neighbor at a Memorial Day cookout might let something fly, but as a child, I was more startled and frightened by the expression of anger by the words used in such expressions. The first time I heard a now famous and commonly used four-letter word was in the fourth grade. A hardscrabble classmate used it. I had no idea what it meant but I knew from the mood and the reaction that it was heavy. But as many words formerly considered off-limits in our culture have now gained general acceptance or at least have lost their ability to shock, another word which once enjoyed a respectable reputation has become a word off-limits. It has become associated with weakness with being wishy-washy, with not having any principles. It's a word that has become almost forbidden and anathema. The word is compromise. The word comes from the Latin root com, meaning together, and promise, meaning, well, to promise. A compromise is something that we promise together less as a couple standing at the altar, as representatives of two or more groups who have been in discussion, dissension, disagreement, debate, and yet have managed to come to some form of resolution and to a promise into which each is willing to enter. Compromise, a promise together. As you might imagine, compromise was difficult to come by in the early days of Christianity. Jesus was Jewish, and by his own admission came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And yet, he so deeply challenged both the people who had the responsibility for interpreting the law and their interpretations that it only took three years for him to be silenced by death at the hands of religious and civil authorities. Likewise, after his death, the two earliest leaders of Christianity were radicalized converts from the Judaism that he both embodied and challenged. Paul, a deadly enforcer of Jewish law against people who had come to follow the teachings of Christ, And Peter, the leader of the Jerusalem Christians, who believed that the only way to become Christian, to be or to become Christian, was to be or become Jewish and adopt and follow all the Jewish laws. It took a blinding light and a voice from heaven to change Paul's orientation. It took a startling dream, rise, Peter, kill, and eat, to change Peter's. Even though the early Christian movement was small, the atmosphere surrounding it was loaded. The stakes were high. It was easy for early Christians to divide into two camps and to view compromise as a dirty word. But in the scene in which we just read from Acts, a party of Jewish Christians centered in Jerusalem 
and ambassadors to Gentile Christians, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas, have come together. Because Jewish Christians are concerned that Gentiles are being admitted admitted into the faith without having to be circumcised if they are male and without having to follow the 612 laws that grew out of the Ten Commandments and are generally known as the Law of Moses or Torah. Now, I want to pause here as a Christian talking to Christians and talk a little bit about the law. We in this sanctuary come out of 2,000 years of Christian history in which we are taught and believe that we are saved by grace, not by law. We are almost congenitally disposed to and have a very dim view of anything that goes under the title of religious law. But we are often ignorant of how spiritual and meaningful obedience to the law was and is for Jews. James Kugel, a rabbi and biblical scholar retired from Harvard, has the best and warmest description of the law that I have seen. Those of you who have taken my Old Testament class may remember me sharing this in class. I hope you do remember it. Here is Kugel's description of the law. In the little encounters of daily life, Kugel writes, between children and parents, customers and shopkeepers, beggars and almsgivers, natives and foreigners, the law set out the precise form of behavior that God had prescribed. Do what it said and you were serving God. Failed to do so and you were committing a sin. Some of the commandments had the broadest scope. You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Other of its commandments were very specific. They told you what to do when you chanced upon a bird's nest in the road. Or they specified that you had to have a safety railing for your house. There were rules about vows to God that you might utter in a moment of panic. There were rules about what God had ordered you to do in case you contracted a then common skin disease. There were rules about festivals and pilgrimages and fasting, about bodily emissions, rules and rules and rules, until it seemed like there was no area of life about which the Torah, the law, didn't have something to say. And that, for later Judaism, was precisely the beauty of it. In doing each thing according to the way that God had prescribed, Kugel continues, a person could, as it were, turn life itself into a constant act of reaching out to God. Nothing was done for its own sake. Everything was done to serve God. And so without having to retreat to a monastery or a mountaintop, one could live each minute 
in a state of holiness and sanctity, creating a living, breathing connection between one's little life on earth and God in heaven. What is more beautiful than that idea? A living, breathing connection. That is Torah. That is law at its best. But since Gentiles had been raised in the Greco-Roman world, the law of Moses was no more a part of their experience than it's a part of ours. We as Christians today tend to live by the motto that Patrick will preach on next week so he can undo everything I've just said. (laughs) We tend to live by the motto from Galatians, for freedom Christ has set us free. It's as if the religious formation of Jews and Gentiles back then and now has occurred not only in two different cities, Jerusalem and Antioch, but also on two different islands, two different continents, two different planets. Luke describes in our passage that there was no small dissension and debate between them. Sometimes it feels like not even a successful Apollo mission could take us from one planet to another. But what we have in our passage for today is depiction of a meeting, council meeting, in which those who have been part of the growth of Christianity among Gentiles travel to Jerusalem to try to convince those who are leaders among the Jewish Christians to recognize the Gentiles' faith even though the Gentiles are not being circumcised and are not adopting the 612 laws that belong to the Torah. Now granted, in the book of Acts, we only have the speeches of those who are arguing for Gentile conclusion. Peter speaks of the work he's seen the Holy Spirit do among the Gentiles. Barnabas and Paul testify to the signs and wonders they have seen God doing among the Gentiles. James then rises and ties the inclusion of the Gentiles back to the promises that God had made centuries ago that are found in our present-day books of Amos and Isaiah, which he quotes. And James concludes by doing something we are not supposed to do He offers up a compromise. My colleague at Georgetown Presbyterian Church, Camille Murray, describes the compromise that James proposes. The Gentiles will not be asked to follow all of the law of Moses, but they will be asked to adhere to its essentials. Avoiding food associated with ceremonies to the gods avoiding sexual immorality, and avoiding food that's been prepared in a certain way. The Gentile converts will accept that life as a Christian will impact their way of life, but they will not be asked to assimilate completely to a culture 
that is foreign to them. The Jewish converts, on the other hand, will not have to say anything goes. They still get to live lives that are marked by their covenant with God. They will also accept that their experience of faith and conversion is not the only way that God is revealed. Though the Jerusalem Council is never again referred to in the Bible, it is a compromise that seems to have worked. Christianity remains strong among the people who have been steeped in Judaism, and it spreads beyond its base in Jerusalem into the Greco-Roman world through the subsequent missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. The compromise is successful enough that many years later, during the, near the end of his life, Paul or one of his associates writes in Ephesians, Christ is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. In the early 1990s, I taught an introductory New Testament class to undergraduates at Coe College in Iowa. The best student in the class was Jewish, and she was struggling to understand what she had long experienced as critique and hostility from Christians. When towards the end of the semester, we got to this passage in Ephesians, she saw for perhaps the first time that despite what she had experienced from Christians, the ultimate vision of God in sending Christ was not to erect walls and barriers, but to break them down. Even though she did not convert to Christianity, which wasn't my purpose, she saw that within Christianity there was a place for her. The dividing wall of hostility began to break down, and that brought her joy as well as an A in the class, <laughs> which she would have gotten anyway because she was the best student. Now, I know this is a long story in Acts, and Nancy and I did our best to cut about half of it out so you could get out into the heat today <laughs> after fellowship downstairs. I know it's a long story, and the bulk of this sermon has kept us in the first century. But there are several teachings that I derive from this story and that I do believe can speak to us today across our own dividing walls of hostility concerning race and religion and country of origin and sexual identity and class and ideology and etc., etc., etc. These seem to add brick after brick to the walls that divide us in our common life. I can do, more, do no more than list these teachings in short summary statements. Compromise may have become a dirty word in our time, but it is not a dirty word. Compromise requires change, 
from every side or party involved. Compromise rarely is perfectly balanced. Compromise rarely is pure. Compromise is nearly always fragile and requires much feeding and watering both in its formation and after it is reached. Compromise must make substantial progress toward what is ultimately just and right to leave any kind of historical mark. And those who do not experience the fullness of justice must be taken into consideration in the spreading around of the benefits of compromise. Compromise most often benefits from clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and eloquence. Appeals to hate and resentment, which Peter and Paul were not shy about doing on other occasions may call attention to the need for compromise. And they may even create the need for it. But such appeals rarely advance the consent of the whole that is so necessary for compromise to last. A consent that happened at the Jerusalem Council. And it led to hope and joy in Jerusalem and hope and joy in Antioch on both sides of the dividing walls of hostility. So in our life together, especially in our country, let us dust off our dictionaries, open them to the letter C, find the word in bold print, or if you must, look it up on Google, but Google the word compromise. Then let us revere its sound and beauty. Let us dance with it as if we are at our first prom and never want the dance to end. Compromise is not a word we should forbid our children from saying, Amen.